Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Romans 2, 1 through 5. This is the word of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we come to you um, with humble hearts. We uh, know that we need to hear this message this morning. Lord, we want your whole counsel. We just don't want the things that our ears are tickled by. We don't just want the things that uh, make us feel happy. We want your whole counsel. So open it up for us this morning. Show us who you are in your holiness and in your righteousness. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, have you ever thought about how amazing fruit is? I mean, God made something, think about this, God made something that grows on trees and bushes. It needs no processing. It's sweet. It's delicious. And it's actually good for you. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, think about the banana. It even comes with its own wrapper. That's pretty awesome. But when a banana has gone bad, it warns you, right? The peel gets black and greasy. When strawberries are bad, they shrivel and get moldy. But the apple, no warning, no heads up. You bite into it, and it's a disgusting, mushy, mealy mess. It's deceitful. Honestly, there's nothing worse than a a mealy apple. In Romans 1, Paul addressed the bad fruit that you can see. In our passage today, he's coming after the bad apples. They look good, but on the inside are rotten to the core. It's going to be, as Nate alluded to, it's going to be another heavy sermon this week. And we're in a series of sermons that are heavier than usual. Paul is making his case about the true state of human nature and about God's righteousness. He started it in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and he's going to continue it in our passage today. And in next week's passage, which is verses 17 through 29 of chapter 2, and following week's passage, chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, it's not until we get to chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21, that we'll catch a ray of sunshine. It feels heavy. Why should we spend so much time on sin? Well, there are two reasons. There's probably many reasons, but two that I'll offer to you today. The first is that we need to be told. We need to be told. When we're caught doing wrong, the first word is often, but, but, as in, but I didn't know, or, but did you see what he did to me? But you have no idea 
how hard it was to resist. But look at those people. Like the ones in Romans 1. They're really bad. Paul made this point last week. Other Paul Scrabeck. I'm going to make that clarification. Other, other people's sin is always worse than ours. But, but, but. We are self-justification machines. Are we really that bad? Especially in our current age. It sure doesn't feel that way. Plus, why make somebody feel bad? What does that accomplish? You know, we live in the age of the, the therapeutic. Now, therapeutic is a big word, but it's really the best word. What does it mean? It means feeling good about ourselves is the most important thing. All manner of sin is justified because we've been told that feeling good about ourselves is the number one thing in life. There's a book from the 70s. Some of you here will probably remember this. It's called, I'm Okay, You're Okay. That captures the essence of the therapeutic. Hey, man, we're all okay. You do you and I'll do me. As long as we feel good about ourselves. Feeling good is the justification for sin. But the message of the Bible is, I'm not okay and you're not okay. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul knows human nature. He knows our tendency to justify ourselves. That's the first reason. The second reason Paul spends so much time here on our sin and on God's holiness is that God's holiness requires it. Again, we live in this time that, that desires to bring God down to the lowest common denominator. To make him accessible is the idea, right? And God is accessible. He has condescended and come down to us in Christ Jesus. But we have a tendency to want to come to him on our terms. God is my co-pilot, is the bumper sticker. But his holiness demands that he is our God and not our co-pilot. And his holiness demands perfection. His holiness cannot tolerate even one transgression. And so, he must judge. If he does not, he is not just. And if he is not just, he is not God. And Paul knows that the original hearers of this letter in Rome, and God knew that the people today who are reading and hearing from Romans need to know about their sins and about God's judgment of their sins. So Paul's not going to gloss over this part in his letter to the church in Rome. He's camping out here for a few chapters because there's no good news without bad news. And if we weren't sinners in need of saving, Jesus' death is nothing more than an unnecessary example of suffering. So in chapter 1, Paul addressed the heathens and the pagans, the Gentiles, irreligious people who, who don't and won't acknowledge God, people who God leaves to their own devices to live lives that ultimately destroy them and bring death. In chapter 2, Paul executes a sneak attack. He's like a stealth bomber. When you are least expecting it, he opens up the bomb and drops bombs on the self-righteous and the religious, people who follow the rules, who go to church, who appear to be right with God, but whose hearts are unchanged. In chapter 3, he loops in all people, heathens, pagans, outwardly religious, inwardly religious, and pronounces the same damnation before he finally reveals what kind of person is acceptable to God. So that's your intro. 
Our outline today is no excuses, no withholding, no denying, and no hope. Let's look at the first point in our outlines, no excuses, verses 1 through 5. It's important that we identify just who is Paul writing to, okay? Good Bible interpretation starts with understanding the context. One of the worst things that we can do is grab a verse out of context and use it in our lives. That's not good Bible interpretation. So the context for Romans is Paul is writing this church, this letter to the church in Rome. And just understand that in those days, it would have been read aloud in the meeting. It's not that everybody would have received a copy of it. So imagine hearing this reading aloud. And also understand that it was a church made up of primarily Jewish converts, but there were also some Gentiles perhaps there as well. And in chapter 1, he addressed the Gentiles. Now in Romans 2, he executes that stealth stealth attack. As he levels blow after blow on the pagan Gentiles, you can imagine the Jewish hearers kind of getting riled up. Yeah, Paul, that's right, you tell them. God's going to execute judgment against those heathen sinners. Don't let them bring their filth into our sacred community. God's going to judge them and leave them to their, their filth. And then he lowers the boom. Verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, not all judgment is wrong. Moral judgment is necessary. We must be able to say right is right and wrong is wrong. Otherwise, how are criminals ever brought to justice? We make moral judgments continuously. And it's not just about whether a behavior is right or wrong. It's judgment about the kind of person someone else is. That's what Paul is talking about here. He wants to run the company. He's power hungry. She wears expensive clothes. She's materialistic. He drives a 20-year-old Subaru. He must be a liberal. (laughs) I'm just kidding, but we can be sure that guy's cheap. She's very pretty. She must be shallow. And every time we point the finger at someone else, we condemn ourselves to that same judgment. Why? Because we practice the very same things. Well, what are those things? Now, again, I think the part that stands out perhaps from Romans chapter 1 is the stuff about the immorality, right? People leaving natural relationships for people of the same sex, and it's easy to sort of focus in on that, but I want to draw our attention back to verses 29 through 31 of chapter 1. Listen to the things that are said here. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We have all judged. No one of us has ever not judged someone else. Remember this fundamental truth. We are God's image bearers. Genesis 1, verse 27. We bear the image of God. He made us different from every other creature. 
We know right from wrong, and we have a conscience, and from that place we make judgments. This is right, and that is wrong. But every time we make a judgment to self-justify and prop ourselves up, we self-condemn. This kind of hypocrisy was a big deal to Jesus. You may recall from the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is repeated a number of times in different, uh, con- different Gospels, three of the, the four Gospels, and, but in particular, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. As he nears his conclusion at the beginning of chapter 7, this is what Jesus says. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log sticking out of your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And Jesus reserved his fiercest judgment for the religious. Nearly all of Matthew 23 is Jesus pronouncing judgment against the Pharisees, who were the most pious and religious of all the Jews. Seven times in Matthew chapter 23, he calls them hypocrites. And here's the thing. We love, we love to blast the Pharisees. They are the villains in Jesus' life, bad guys who wanted to make Jesus dead and get him out of the way. But honestly, I think that paints an overly simple picture. It makes it easy for us to say, I'm not like them, when the truth is it's very easy to become a Pharisee. Jesus is saying it's not only the outside that matters, but what's inside us as well. Do we shine like a crisp, fresh apple, but are rotted? Looking at verse 4 now from our passage this morning. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Some of us, all of us, at one time or another, have made God's grace cheap. We act like spoiled children who presume that our Heavenly Father will always forgive. All we have to do is follow a formula and pray a prayer, and He's required to forgive us. Just like a spoiled child often fails to flourish as an adult, Stuck in lifelong dependency, so too the Christian who presumes on God's kindness. That kind of presumption, it reveals, as Paul says here, a hard and impenitent heart. A proud heart that does not truly understand its need for God. Perhaps believes in God, but guess what? Even the demons believe and they shudder. What I'm talking about right now is conviction. A belief is something you hold. A conviction is something that holds you. It moves you. And in this case, it moves you from hardness of heart to desperation for God and his ways. But belief that results in presumption leads to destruction. As Eugene Peterson puts it, God is kind, but he is not soft. 
at its heart, wrongful judgment is a repeat of Genesis 3. Remember what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve took of the fruit and ate? In effect, what was happening is there is that they did not trust God. In fact, they actually would prefer to be like God. They wanted to be God. And at its heart, this kind of wrongful judgment is the same kind of thing. We want to be God and put ourselves on his throne by unrighteously judging others. But the righteous judge will not stand for it. Let me put a finer point on this. It's not just that judging others and being hypocritical displease God. It will result in his righteous judgment coming down on you. But for now, it is being stored, as we see in verse 5. Physicists describe movement as kinetic energy and rest as potential energy. For example, a coiled spring, right, has potential energy. And the more we compress that spring down and down and down, the more potential energy that we're storing up. And when that spring is released, the potential energy is converted to kinetic energy. The more self-justification before God, the more hypocrisy, the more belief without conviction in life change, the more energy, potential energy of wrath that we are storing up for ourselves in this spring. The spring is compressed and wound tighter and tighter until it is released and explodes with devastating power on the day of judgment. And that day of judgment will be awful. It will be awful. Those that have not bowed the knee to Jesus will be thrown into a lake of fire forever. He describes it as a fiery furnace. He says that there will be eternal punishment. He says that there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. As the Lord would have it, one of my children last night was in her Bible reading, read Matthew chapter 25, and she says, what is gnashing of teeth? And so we talked about that for a little bit. But I think all of you here understand what we're talking about is the greatest awful punishment and severest despair that you can imagine. I want to close this first point with an analogy from Francis Schaeffer about how we will be judged with the standard by which we have judged others. It's called the it's the tape recorder analogy. Now, Francis Schaeffer, I think he maybe died in the 70s or 80s, so um, we'll just call it the recorder analogy. So imagine that each baby is born into the world with an invisible recorder hung around its neck or his neck. Imagine further that these are very special recorders that record only when moral judgments are made. Aesthetic judgments such as this is beautiful are not recorded, but whenever a person makes a statement such as She's such a gossip, or he's so lazy. The recorder turns on, records the statement, and then turns off. Many times each day, the recorder operates as the person makes moral judgments about those around him, recording dozens of judgments each week, hundreds of each year, and thousands of judgments in a lifetime. Then the scene shifts, and we suddenly see all the people of the world standing before God at the end of time, 
One says, God, it's not fair for you to judge me. Another says, but I didn't know about Christ. Another says, no one taught me the Ten Commandments. And I, and I never read the Sermon on the Mount. Then God speaks. Very well. Since you claim not to know my laws, I will set aside my perfect standard of righteousness. Instead, I will judge you on this. And as he pushes the button on the recorder, the person listens with growing horror at his own voice, pouring forth a stream of condemnation towards those around him. She shouldn't be doing this. He was wrong in that. Thousands upon thousands of moral judgments. When the recording ends, God says, this will be the basis of my judgment. How well have you kept the moral standards you proved that you understood by constantly applying them to those around you? Here you accuse someone of lying, yet have you ever stretched the truth? You were angry at that fellow for being selfish, yet have you ever put your own interests before someone else's? And every person will be silent. For no one has consistently lived up to the standard he demands of others. There are no excuses. How can we escape? Let's look at point two in our outlines. Verses six through 11, no withholding. And I'll just go ahead and read those verses for you now. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This passage, this passage is not only difficult to hear, it's also difficult to interpret. This could be a confusing passage here. It seems as if Paul is saying that by works we will be justified before God. But later in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says, no human being will be justified by works. So which one is it? Well, furthermore, we see throughout Paul's letters that justification is by faith alone. We're saved by trusting in Christ for forgiveness of sins, not by doing it ourselves, not by good works, not by being a good person. That's one of the most fundamental tenets of God's ways. But James says, chapter 2 of James, he says that faith without works is dead and that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, which is it? It's both. It's both. Paul and James agree that the basis of salvation, the basis is grace alone through faith alone, with works as the necessary result of that faith. If faith with no works is no faith. John Calvin puts it this way, as Paul contends that we are justified apart from, help, apart from the help of works, so James does not allow those who lack good works to be reckoned righteous. And Paul himself did not exclude good works. He commends them. He extols the importance of good works. Let me just give you an example from Ephesians chapter 2. So here's what Paul says in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
And then right on the heels of that, in verse 10, he says this, or writes this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He doesn't say that we can or that we might or that when it's convenient that we will walk in them. He says that we should, we ought, if you are a believer in Christ, if your faith is real, you will walk in good works. So, back to our text. What does Paul mean when he says that God will judge everyone according to what they have done? He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God's offer, God offers. These are people who have come to God in repentance and belief in Christ. They've come to God on his terms, not on their own terms. And they are saved from judgment by God. They are justified by faith in Christ. And the reality of their conversion is shown by doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. That's one half of the story. What of those who do not come to God on his terms? Well, it says right here, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. So hold on, let's just see. What is self-seeking? Do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. Maybe your mind goes to the people Paul described in Romans chapter 1. But remember our context here. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to the religious, the self-righteous. He's talking to anyone who believes they are a good person but that has no need for God. Or that God might be their co-pilot to help them along the way. For the, for the religious, the self-righteous, the hypocrites, Paul goes on to write, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. You know, playing favorites is nothing new. In most contexts, it's actually completely expected. Everyone knows who the boss favors, right? That person gets the best opportunities. Everyone knows who's the teacher's pet. They get called on to answer all the questions. They get the benefit of the doubt. And the kids know who the parent's favorite is, right? But there is no partiality with God. Not even with his chosen people, the Jews. His judgment falls on all equally. Blessings and honor and favor for those who keep on doing re good regardless of background, Jew or Gentile. And for those who with hard hearts spurn his patience and loving kindness, he pours out his just wrath and fury, his tribulation and distress. We may be partial, but God is not. He does not withhold his good gifts from his children, and he does not withhold his righteous judgment from his uh, unrepentant enemies. So there is no withholding of God's judgment, judgment of good and of bad. And that brings us to point three, no denying. No denying. Verses 12 through 16, I'll just go ahead and read those for you again. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You know, in sports, being bigger or better is no guarantee of victory. There's a lot of talking heads in the sports world that love to kind of theoretically talk about, well, if this team played that team, this team would certainly win, and they should go all the way to the championship and all these kinds of things. But at the end of all these conversations, these sports commentators almost always land on the same thing, and that is this. You still have to play the game. You still have to figure out who is going to win. Just because one team is clearly better on paper doesn't mean it will win. In life, being special and set apart can be problematic. You see this all the time with brilliant business people. They are smarter than everyone else in the room, or at least they think they are. And their hubris is their downfall. You may have heard the name Sam Bankman-Fried. He led FTX uh, to ruin by taking clients' funds out of their accounts and spending it on things that he thought were appropriate. He's really just the latest in a long line of people who think they don't have to play by the rules. Israel's greatest king was guilty of this as well. I know many of you know the story of King David, but it's worth repeating. I think it fits well into this context, this context of there is no set-apart people or person who will escape God's judgment. Remember, David saw Bathsheba bathing, and he wanted to possess her, and so he did. And to cover his sin, he had her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. And Nathan, the prophet, confronted David with a story that I know many of you will remember. But a wealthy man who had many sheep stole the one sheep that this poor man had. And David was indignant. He was righteously angry. And he pronounced judgment on the wealthy man. And when he did, Nathan said, you are the man. You are the man, David. David thought he didn't need to play by the rules. He forgot whose he was and who he reported to. And he paid the price with the life of his son. The Jews knew they were special. They were God's chosen people. And so they carried on as if they did not need to actually play the game or to play by the rules. But Paul puts the nail in the coffin of this thinking and this kind of argument in these verses. And the key verse is verse 13. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And he builds his argument on the idea that even Gentiles who never heard the law still have it written on their hearts. Without ever hearing a word of God's law, they knew right from wrong. We see this today as well. Toddlers hide when they've done something wrong. A key factor, this is really interesting, a key factor in predicting a person's happiness is the level of corruption in the government under which they sit. The less corrupt the government, the happier the person. The more corrupt, the more unhappy the person. Why is that? Well, our happiness is tied to upholding what's right 
in punishing what is wrong, that there are no special exemptions, that all are judged fairly by the same standard. There's no denying that all people will be accountable to God in the day of judgment. No one escapes and no one will be able to say, but, but this or but that, because we have God's law written on our hearts. There will be no excuses and God will not withhold his judgment. And so we come to the final point in our outlines. Is there no hope? It sure seems like there's no hope when you read this passage and these verses. Of course, we know there is hope. Looking back over the past, but we, we must dwell here for a minute, yes? Looking back over the passage, we think of the times we've judged others. What, what will the invisible recorder around my neck and your neck reveal on Judgment Day? Will it be self-righteousness? A sense that you are better than those around you because you are a Christian? Will it reveal a lack of striving, an effort for good, good works? Because after all, Christ died for my sins. I can rest in his work. I don't have to do anything. Will it reveal a belief that God will judge partially, sparing you because you're one of the good guys, you're one of the good gals, but destroying those wretches who practice immorality? Will it reveal a heart that is self-satisfied? Will it reveal a heart that speaks the truth but acts differently? When I think about the flock at Orchard, I don't worry too much about Romans 1. Not too much. What I worry about for you and me is Romans 2. That's what concerns me. The self-righteousness, the smugness of being correct, the judgmentalism that comes from thinking oneself better than others, the hypocrisy that flows from that. It's sneaky. It's hidden. It's very difficult to detect. But as today's passage has shown, it provokes God to the same kind of wrath as what we saw in Romans 1. Now, if we could somehow stop all this wrongdoing today, what about the past? God can't just pretend it didn't happen. That would make him an unjust judge. But in an unexpected turn of events here, as we think about God judging, it is not God the Father who will judge. It is actually Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 22 says this, Jesus says this, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is the judge on that final day. He will be the one. But this is where the beauty of the gospel, this is where our hope comes in. The judge, Jesus, stepped down from heaven and became a man. He set aside his heavenly rights and was just like one of us. So we know that he gets us, but he doesn't just get us, he saves us. When Jesus went to the cross, he was wrongfully accused. He had done no wrong. He was sinless, but God put on him our sin. This is the great exchange that we talk about. Our sin on him, his righteousness given to us. That in God's eyes, we might be righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the verse when you think about this. This is what I hope comes to your mind. It says it so beautifully. God made Jesus to be sin. Put his sin on Jesus. Our sin on Jesus. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He was the perfect lamb of God. Spotless. 
in every way. So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the judge was judged for us. The righteous judge became the judged. And all of God's wrath and fury and tribulation and distress against our sin was put on him. In exchange, we receive forgiveness of sin, righteousness of God, and everlasting life. But to receive this forgiveness, you must repent and believe. Just as verse 4 from our passage says today, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His patience toward you is meant to lead you to repentance. It's not to be presumed upon. Yes, it's meant to be relied upon, but not presumed upon. Come to him in in repentance. It's not a passive act. It involves sorrow and contrition and turning away from self-righteousness, from self-reliance and playing and playing God to submission and joyful obedience. And when you do, when you do these things, he gives you a new heart, one that can choose to obey him and please him. You can actually become a new kind of person, the kind of person that God envisioned from the very beginning, who he actually made you to be, one who doesn't need to judge others because your identity is not determined by others or by your intelligence, or by your fitness, or by your job, or by your wealth, or by your relationships, or by your beauty, or any of those things. Your identity is safe with God. You are hidden with Christ in God. And you don't need to judge others because you have a new heart that wants to obey God and live by his ways, not your own. That's the beauty of the gospel that God invites you into. And I invite you into that gospel today. If you have not submitted to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's never a better time than right now. There's never a better time than right now. I was in a a shop in Alma yesterday, an antique shop, and it said, the right time to buy the antique is right now because tomorrow we probably won't be here. In some ways, it's a silly example, but in some ways, that's how it is with Jesus. Tomorrow is not promised. And you don't want to be standing before the righteous God, the righteous judge, without being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So I invite you into that today. Please stand with me as we close. Father, I thank you for... These words, God, your holiness, we hold your holiness out. This morning we think about, God, how holy are you. You must judge sin. You cannot look the other way. That would make you unjust. And Lord, our hearts cry out. We're made in your image. We cry out for justice. We desire justice. But that also means that we will be judged justly. And so, God, let us hide ourselves In the righteousness of Jesus, let us cling to him and not any of our own. Lord, yes, we want to walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us. But God, when we think about our righteousness, Lord, let us only think of your son, Jesus. Lord, let any 
self-righteousness, self-justification. Let it be far from us. Lord, we struggle day by day with this. Lord, we know that the recorder says many things that we wish it didn't say, and it reveals much about the sin that still remains. But God, grow us, sanctify us every day through your word, through your Holy Spirit, and by your people, even here at Orchard, that we might be more like Jesus, God, that we would flee from that kind of sin, that kind of self-justification, that kind of hypocrisy, and that we might be true believers, true Christians that bear real fruit for your kingdom. God, we pray these things today. Be with us this week in Jesus' name. Amen.